This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons who faithfully support the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are an extremely small team comprised of just two families with a passion for stories and image bearers. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories and rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value this work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way you can support us is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but it has a big impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Before we begin, we want to make the listener aware that this story contains adult content related to suicidal ideation. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. You can place a free and confidential call to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. We've linked the number in our bio. You are worthy of fighting for, and you are loved. Today is episode two of Elle's story. If you have not listened to the first episode, check that out before you listen to this one. I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. And so this is 2019. You end up joining a redemption group. What yes, is that? I sure do. So the way that the church would describe a redemption group is, I think it's 10 weeks, um, and it is a quote-unquote like spiritual intensive class. I think it's so funny that they use that language because like, for example, you know, like class registrations are coming up for the spring and they have a couple of classes that are like spring break intensive. So it's like shoving an entire semester into just the week of spring break. And that's kind of how they would describe redemption groups is it's like shoving, I don't know, like a lifetime's worth of like spiritual teaching into a 10 week course. The way that I would describe redemption groups um, is imagine that you are in group therapy and everybody in the group is forced, forced to divulge every sin that they have ever committed um, and any kind of suffering that they have ever experienced, no matter how uncomfortable you are with talking about it. And also, you don't actually have a therapist who's leading the group therapy. You have like a middle-aged woman. That's what I'm about to say. Group therapy without a licensed therapist. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't even have language for how, how unbelievably unhinged redemption groups is. They have like a box of tissues in the middle, but if somebody starts crying, they have to get the tissues themselves. You cannot give them the tissues because we're not supposed to comfort each other. The Holy Spirit is supposed to comfort us. What in the heck? And who, do you know where this came from or like who, who started? These? I know they did it at I don't know who started it. I know that they did it at Mars Hill. So oh I don't know if Mars gosh. Hill started it. Yeah, but they, I, oh yeah, John, I know that you didn't finish listening to the Mars Hill podcast, but they have an episode about redemption groups and it's a doozy. It, it, it'll it really Maybe I'll tell have you to go back and to listen know. to that one. Yeah, I'll try to figure out which episode it is so I can send it to you. But, oh. and I mean, I just want to say that 
my redemption group experience was pretty bad, but like my experience does not even come close to some of the things that other women I know were told in their redemption groups. I mean, it's truly unbelievable the ki- the kinds of things that went on in those groups. Gosh. Okay. Were they mixed men and women? So no. separate women mm-hmm. were together, men were together. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. So at your redemption group, mm-hmm. I can only imagine what you were told was sin that you needed to start confessing. How did that go? Yeah. So um, I kind of talked about two separate things. One was that I talked about how I had, you know, interned for a couple of years and then continued to volunteer um, with that nonprofit that I worked with or that I mentioned earlier. Um, And that nonprofit worked with um, people experiencing homelessness and incarcerated women, particularly women who who are survivors of sexual exploitation and trafficking. I obviously heard a lot of like really hard and traumatic stories when I worked there. And at the time I was just in it and I was hearing it all the time and I like never really got a chance to process it. But then later when I wasn't working for them anymore, I feel like the weight of a lot of the stories that I heard really started to hit me. And I just started to, you know, as like everybody on the planet has ever done, like ask myself how a good and powerful God could allow these kinds of suffering. Just, you know, normal questions um, that everybody has was my the response to that was, you know, that I don't trust God and I think that I know better than God and all those other kinds of classic, uh, terrible responses. But the other thing that I talked about is that my um, relationship with my mom continued at that point to not be very good. My depression was getting worse. And at that point, it had started to become worse than it ever had been before. In the past, like when I was in college, um, when things were really bad, I would start to experience what like therapists and psychologists will call passive suicidal ideation, which is not like thoughts of committing suicide, but it's basically thoughts of wishing that suicide would happen to you, right? Like I'd be walking home from the library and I would think, God, I wish like a car would hit me or I would go to sleep at night and just wish that I wouldn't wake up in the morning, right? And so I'm not thinking to myself, I want to kill myself, but I'm thinking to myself, I don't really want to keep living. But at that point, uh, when things got really bad, I was starting to, for the first time in my life, start experiencing, start having actual suicidal thoughts where it wasn't just, I wish I would get into a car accident on my way home, but what if I just drove my car off a cliff? What if I just went in my bathroom right now and cut my wrists open? And so I was honest about that and I talked about that in my redemption group. And I, to be honest, I don't really remember what they said to me in the moment other than probably just like nothing, like probably just, I'm I'm sorry that you're experiencing that. Jesus loves you. And also keep in mind, so this is uh, like a year and a half after I had come back from my mental breakdown. So I had my mental breakdown in fall of 2016. Um, I came back to school in fall of 2017, dropped one of my minors and took a lot of classes so that I could still graduate on time in spring of 2018. Um, And then when I did redemption groups, it was spring of 2019. And so a year and a half had passed since I had my mental breakdown. Oh no, two and a half years had passed. Um, And my relationship with Pastor A at this point was basically no more. I thought that when I was gone that he just like didn't really reach out to me that much because he was too busy being a pastor. But then I came back and he was like, oh, you're back. That's nice, I guess. And we basically like never really talked again after that. 
which was very hurtful um, because this was somebody who I cared about deeply and who I thought I had this really strong relationship with. And then when it was like, while I was gone, I was just out of sight, out of mind. And then when I came back, he was like, well, I've moved on. You're not my favorite anymore. And I hate that I even said that out loud because that's really how I saw it. Like when I came back and he wasn't really like paying attention to me the way that he had before, because of all of the things he had told me in the past, I told myself, well, I have clearly just idolized my relationship with Pastor A and he doesn't owe me anything. He's a pastor. He has a lot of people that he has to take care of. And so I don't need to do anything about the hurt that I'm experiencing that he went from talking to me and emotionally berating me all the time to basically acting like I don't exist. Like that that's on me. And I think that I just saw myself as like, oh, well, I once thought that I was his favorite and now I'm not his favorite anymore. And so that's clearly just pride that I have to repent of. And so I tell my redemption group about how my mental illness is getting worse and I'm starting to experience suicidal thoughts. And the next week I come to redemption groups um, and who walks in the room, but Pastor A. And he sits down and he says, hi. And I said, hi. And our leader looks at me and she says, L, after you spoke last week, I just really couldn't get what you had said out of my head. And I just had this sense that what you're experiencing is not normal, which, yeah, of course, it's not normal. But she said, you know, I just really couldn't shake the idea that there is a demon in your life who is the source of your suicidal thoughts. And so I told, I didn't even tell Pastor A that I thought that you were, that you had a demon. I just told him what you told me and that I was concerned. And he told me that he thinks that there's something demonic going on, um, which confirmed my suspicions. And so I asked Pastor A to come in here tonight so that he could um, help exercise the demon from your life. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Hold the phone. I have a few questions. Mm -hmm. First off, holy cow, what in the ever-loving heck is happening mm -hmm. here? That was like the most Christian way to say that too, by the way. <laughs> oh, my lanta. What in the ever-loving heck is happening here? Anything that's said in these redemption groups could just make its way somewhere. It's like your deepest most painful things. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm sure they had some sort of parameters around it. I'm trying to remember what it was. I I honestly want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that I think they had like therapy rules where you know when you go to therapy like everything that you say is they can't repeat it unless you have thoughts of harming yourself or harming others and then they will tell somebody. I th I want to say that that was their those were their rules as well. And so the fact that I had expressed thoughts of hurting myself meant that, of course, I would they would not call a medical professional. Of course, they would just talk to Pastor A, who thinks everything is demonic. Oh, my gosh. Okay. This is my now second time hearing this. And I'm equally horrified, if not more horrified, second round. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What the heck? Okay, so you have someone that is in very real danger. Yeah. And you're like, let's call in Pastor A. Yeah. I also, my favorite part of this is that, like, you could have told him anything. And he and his response would have been, it's a demon, right? So this woman, 
has this thought that maybe what's happening to me is demonic. And so in order to confirm her suspicion, she talks to, which I want to say that like this whole like spiritual warfare demons, this, this was Pastor A's whole deal. I think that a lot of the other pastors on staff probably like believed along similar lines that he did but they did not like they were not as into it as he was and so she could have talked to any of those pastors on staff but she talked to the one person who pretty much no matter what she said was gonna say i think it's a demon and so she's like my suspicions have been confirmed well and i think this is we have to point this out too because i i mean i've struggled with suicidal thoughts too that's part mm -hmm. of my story what they're doing here is i mean not only is it wrong but it is it will cause the inverse reaction it will cause someone who is struggling with thoughts of death and hurt self-hurt more of those thoughts because you're not focusing i mean you the strength that you had to can just to share what you were going through just to say this is something that i'm struggling with like that and and that type of setting should you should have been surrounded with compassion and love and understanding and also just the desire to say even if, if especially if they had just said we don't even know what to do with this but we, we want to find someone who can help you because yes. we love you and you have value but instead it's we're going to double down on what's mm -hmm. wrong with you mm -hmm. i mean that needs to be said because that is that is hugely problematic and concerning oh yeah and it gets worse it gets it gets so much worse with the with the blame so one of Pastor A's like all-time favorite passages that he used to talk about all the time um, is the armor of God passage in Ephesians six, right? So like the the spirit of or the sword of Scripture and the shield of truth and the helmet of whatever. He used to talk about this all the time. Whenever he talked about spiritual warfare, he would always say, "Well, the Bible says that the weapon that you have against demons is the sword of of the Word." And so if you are experiencing spiritual warfare and demonic attacks, you should recite scripture at yourself and at the demons, and that's what will defeat them. And so so it's up to you to to recite the scripture and to and to defeat the demons. And so he comes in and he says, yeah, so um your leader and I um both believe that there is something demonic happening in your life. And so you know, L, I I've talked to you a lot of times about spiritual warfare and and Ephesians 6 and I mean have you been doing those things have you have you forgotten what to do <laughs> and I was like oh god honestly I wish I could remember exactly what I said I think I just I felt so put on the spot and I just I'm sure I probably said like yeah I guess I've forgotten and he was like okay well you know they brought me in tonight and, you know, we're going to pray um, and we're going to use scripture to fight off the demons. And hopefully we're going to slay the demon that is, you know, just clinging to your back. But after that, like, you you can't forget anymore. Like, you got to remember that you, and of course he says it like, you have been empowered by the spirit to to combat these demons. And and the Bible says that, like, if you have, if you have the Holy Spirit and you have Jesus in your heart, that, that these demons cannot take a permanent residence and you know maybe he's like clinging to your back or he's like staying in the guest room but but he is not master of your house jesus is master of your house and so you know you're empowered by the spirit like you you are a daughter of the king you know you you gotta wield your your warrior princessness to to fight off these demons 
what are you thinking during this? Are you just like, yeah, I whoa, I have a demon. Everything's going to be better after this dude comes in. To be honest, at that point, I was just so tired that I was just like, sure. Yeah. Like, why not? <laughs> oh. I, yeah. I, I Because at that point in my life, a couple of other things had happened that that the cracks in the in the facade started to appear and i started uh-huh. to i feel like see the i began to see the church a little bit more clearly i wasn't drinking as much Kool-Aid but i was still very in it and so he's saying all these things and there's definitely a part of me that's like I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't really right. think that this is going to cure me. But I I mean, I was just so desperate at that point. I was like, I'll try anything. And also like like I had gone from this from having this like very intense, very close, very personal relationship with Pastor A to him basically forgetting that I existed. And so more than anything, like the main thing that I was thinking was like Oh, he's here to care for me again. Like he didn't forget about me. He still loves me and he saw that I was suffering and he because like cuz the groups were like the pastors did not normally sit in on the groups even the like male groups. And and especially like the girl groups like they 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 weren't there. And so he you know he came out of his way to to come here and to care for me. And and honestly that's the main thing I was thinking of was I was like well, I guess I got his attention again. Like, I guess, I guess he cares about me again. That, that, that really was my main reaction. I mean, this is spiritual abuse. Like, this is, I mean, text. I mean, I don't know if there's textbook spiritual, but this is what it. It's not even covert. It's over spiritual it's, abuse. It's over spiritual abuse, and I mean, I can only imagine what that has done to your like soul as far as how you view God and goodness and love and Jesus because it really turns it inside out and uses all of the good things about God against you and puts it back on you which is not the story of Jesus I I literally often wonder if these dudes are even reading the same Bible because you have to wonder I don't I don't know how I don't know how you can read. I well, I should take that back. I think you could probably. I think I do know. I mean, I think they're picking up on text and interpreting it the way they mm-hmm. want to. But like when I read the Gospels and Jesus' interactions mm-hmm. with people, his interactions with people are so loving and disarming and empowering, and giving back agency to people, and meeting people and weeping and crying. I mean, his harshest rebukes are for the religious people at the time and and so like i just like oh and they would totally disagree with you that jesus even wants to restore agency to people they they would say over and over again that that god is sovereign and we should offer ourselves up to basically just be you know the whole thing about like vessels like i'm just a vessel for the lord they they certainly did not believe in in bodily autonomy or agency i don't know i could go all all day on that this one really bothers me because i've I've like I said I've struggled with those thoughts and 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 to have that used against you in a way and then to tie it to a spiritual part to say not only is something wrong with you for having those thoughts but there's also something wrong with you cuz you're not believing enough is just so wicked. You're not doing and yes, enough. Exactly. You're not you're not saying the right bible verses. How does that end? How the hell do you get out of that? 
Did he exercise you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did that look like, by the way? I wish that I could describe this because, like, when I told you that I told some of my DC friends when I first moved here that I've been exercised, they asked the same question. And I just, like, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it, it, it mostly looks like prayer, except, like, really culty prayer of just a lot of just, like, chanting scripture without context and just saying over and over again, like, Lord, free her from this demon. And he encouraged other people to participate. So I just sat there while like people would chime in with like, yes, Lord, and like free her, Lord, um, and that kind of stuff. And that goes on for a few minutes. And then he says, amen. And we all open our eyes and everybody is looking at me very expectantly. And, and Pastor A says, well, how do you feel? Do do you feel free? (laughs) I can't even say it with a straight face. He goes, do you feel free from the demon? And um, shockingly, I did not. But like everybody is staring at me and everybody wants me to be like, yes, Mm -hmm. like I've been freed. Like, and there's this whole thing about like, like redemption groups, like curing people. Like the number of times I heard stories of women who like struggled with infertility and then they went to redemption groups and then they got pregnant or like people who like Uh struggled with singleness and then they went to redemption groups and then they got married, right? So I'm sure that everybody was expecting me to be like, yeah, I've been cured, but I wasn't. But I didn't want to, I didn't want to just be like, that was worthless. And so I just sort of said, you know, I, I I don't know whether or not that banished the demon, but I feel really cared for by all of you. And I appreciate that you guys went out of your way to to take this time to to pray for me. And thank you. Oh my gosh. That's so heartbreaking. <laughs> oh, so awkward. And heartbreaking though. Yeah. Cause I yeah. feel like you actually did feel that was how you've been conditioned to feel cared for in that space. No, I did genuinely feel cared for because, and I, uh, and like, there was this whole weird thing that happened afterwards where one of the other girls in the group, because Pastor A was like, does anybody have any questions about what just happened? Um, And one of the other girls in the group was like, so you mentioned that like you guys had talked about this before. Like, this is something that you guys have talked about before. And Pastor A was like, yeah, you know, like, Ellen and I have talked about this a lot. And I just remember, like, the weird way that she went about it. I remember thinking to myself that, like, oh, she's jealous that, like, I have this close relationship with him. Like, that's exactly what she was expressing was like, oh, like, you guys talk like you guys are friends. And so all that did was validate the feelings that I had about my relationship with him where I was like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm back to being his favorite so you can suck it. And that's that's really how it felt. I will say that, like, I actually did have this very vivid dream when I was doing redemption groups that was honestly really beautiful. I had a dream about my mom and I forgiving each other and, like, having a good relationship again, which I'm sure came... I, I believe that that came from God. Like, I believe that was of the Spirit. And, and like I said, like, that was some of the stuff that I talked about in redemption groups as well and, and praying that my relationship with my mom would be restored. Like, at the very end of redemption groups, they, like, have this night where people share their stories of, like, things that they experienced in redemption groups. I was really encouraged um, to share the story of the dream that I had. Um, and so, you know, like, I got up on stage and I talked about 
how I'd had a really hard relationship with my mom for a really long time. And, and, you know, like through the course of redemption groups, just really like praying through my relationship with her. I had this dream where she and I were, were clothed in white. We were robed in white and we were holding hands and we were smiling at each other. And it, it gave me so much hope that God would restore our relationship one day. I actually don't remember noticing this, but but Pastor A was on stage with me when that happened, and so many people told me afterwards that they were so moved by the fact that I guess Pastor A was crying, like as I was telling my story. Like he was so moved by by what I was talking about that he was crying. And you know, he's just this like emotionless robot. And so the fact that he's crying, everybody's so moved that Pastor A is is expressing this emotion. Which and that was something again, like when I talked about earlier about how you know, like my friend said, like, Pastor A loved you. Like, that was something that people would talk about. They're like, do you not remember the way that he wept when you shared your story at redemption groups? And so, yeah, like, I mean, that's where, like, a lot of the, like, wrestling that I do in my head comes from is that, like, like, he didn't fake those tears, you know what I mean? Like, I think he did have affection for me, and I think that he was moved by the story that I told of, of this dream that I had about a restored and reconciled relationship with my mom. I mean, he was very clearly moved. He was moved to tears. The affection that he did have for me very clearly did not overcome his very cemented and very messed up theology about um, demons and and just generally how to care for people. Okay, so you you go through this horrible, horrific experience, and then ultimately you talk to a friend about your relationship with Pastor A. So walk us through mm-hmm. that, and then ultimately Pastor A actually ends up resigning. So walk us through what happens there and how you're feeling when it happens. I really felt like after this whole redemption group experience that my relationship with Pastor A had been restored and that I was going to be his favorite again and that we were going to be really close again. But of course, after that, he basically went right back to ignoring me. And so I finally kind of reached a breaking point. And it's actually because our small group had gotten really big. They wanted to like split it up because they really believed in small groups staying really small. And so my small group leader approached me and was like, would you consider splitting off the group and and leading the new group? And I said, no. Um, And she was like, well, why not? And I was like, well, I got a lot of issues with this church, man. And like, I don't know how much longer I'm going to stick around. So I'm certainly not about to to take on a leadership position and and start and start a group. Also, like how tone deaf can they be? Yeah. You're like not doing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not doing OK at all. And I will say that like when I when I so when she and I had this conversation and she was like, why not? And I was like, well, I have XYZ issue with the church. And also, here's a really long list of other things that are going on in my life. And she, I mean, this is somebody who I'm still very close to to this day. And she responded with a lot of compassion. And she was like, honestly, like, I didn't really at that point, I still wasn't really talking that much, even in my small groups, about a lot of the stuff that I was experiencing, because there was just still a level of distrust around. And I don't even know that at the time I would articulate it as distrust. But like, subconsciously, there was instinctually a part of me that felt that if I opened up about this kind of stuff, about the kind of reaction I was going to be met with. And so I wasn't really talking about it a lot, but I trusted this woman's girl. She's like my age. She's a little bit older. Um, And I just sort of like word vomited, like all of the issues that I had with the church, which is more than just the stuff with Pastor A. That's obviously a very key component of it. But there was a lot of other stuff that was going on in the background too, that I was really frustrated by. And then just like all of the other things that I was experiencing in my own life. And she 
was just like, wow, okay, like I did not realize that you were dealing with all of this. Obviously, I don't think it's a good idea for you to start leading a group. In fact, if anything, I think that this is a time when we can serve you instead of asking you to serve us. And so we like talked about a bunch of stuff. And then she asked me, she was like, you know, I think that a lot of the things that you just said about your concerns about Pastor A and other things that are happening in the church, like, I think those are really serious. And I think that we should, I think that we should talk to like another one of the pastors about this. And I was like, all right. And so she sets up a meeting um, with another pastor. We'll call him Pastor K. Was she made aware at this point that you had been like, that a demon had been exercised? Did you tell her I'm that? I'm trying to remember. Yes. I'm just trying to like, understand how widespread this knowledge is in that community of like demons being exercised oh, it was very, from people. I mean, the church was really big. And so like at the time, I think there were like 600 people who attended that church, which is, I mean, isn't like huge, but like, that's kind of a big deal too. Like I, if I'm in like a mega church and I hear that there's like multiple demons being exercised, like that's not just like, Oh, that just rolled right by me. That information is kind of, what? Yeah. Well, again, I think that everybody just saw it as like, oh, like quirky Pastor A and his like demon stuff. I think that was part of the culture, yeah. right? Yeah, that that's what I'm trying culture. to figure out. Yeah. So like, it's not shocking that this is happening? No, no, definitely not shocking. Wild. Especially since Wild. it was coming from okay. Pastor A. I think there would have been a level of surprise if it had come from any of the other pastors. But the fact that it was like, oh, yeah, like Pastor A exercised L the other day. Everyone was like, yeah, that's that's his whole deal. <laughs> Pastor A, demon hunter. Mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. So you go and talk to Pastor K. Mm -hmm. How does, do you tell him everything that's been going on? Yes. At that time, it's it's really hard to talk about just because, like, I'm obviously telling the story as I see it now. But at the time, I really had not put together the pieces that, that what I was experiencing was emotional or spiritual abuse. I would not have said that. I could not have articulated that. I just wasn't there yet. And so really the main thing that I talked about was that like, and again, there was some other stuff that I really had qualms with about the church that I talked about as well. But when it came to Pastor A, the main thing that I talked about was, you know, he and I once had this really close relationship where we talked about a lot of stuff and then he basically forgot about me. But even though at the time I still thought that a lot of the ways that he treated me were pretty normal, I think that the pastor that I spoke to like picked up on the fact that the way that he was talking to me was not the way that pastors should be talking to people. Because I told a lot of stories about like, yeah, he used to say this to me and he used to say that to me and he used to like treat me this way. Um, and then he came to my redemption group and did all of these things. And then now he's back to not talking to me anymore. And so I think that Pastor K like read between the lines and was like, that shouldn't be happening. He didn't really say that to me because I think that he just like didn't really want to alarm me or like make me feel like the situation was worse than it was. But he pretty much just like very sincerely was like, I am so sorry about all of these things that have happened to you. You know, the church has clearly let you down in a lot of ways and has really hurt you. And it just, it makes me really sad because I remember telling him that 
I understood that like at a church of that size, people were going to fall through the cracks and that like I was just hurt that I was one of the ones who had fallen through the cracks because I felt like I had given so much to the church. But I even felt embarrassed about saying that because it felt like pride. Like it felt like I was saying that like I was special and that the fact that the church like forgot about me was this like extra horrible thing. And I felt embarrassed for feeling that way. Which just makes me really sad because I should have been hurt that all of those things happened to me. And I had every right to be upset mm-hmm. about not just the way that I was treated when Pastor A and I were close, but the fact that he just like completely dropped me once I wasn't in front of him all the time. Mm-hmm. I had every right to be hurt about that stuff. And I felt like I was this like prideful, sinful person for for being upset about all of that. And so Pastor K like really affirmed me and he was like, no. You have every right to feel hurt. I think that the church has really let you down. And, you know, I I really hear all of the other concerns that you brought up, which was, you know, like I was starting to have some second thoughts about this whole complementarianism thing. That was one of the main things that I brought up. Um, And just like other sort of like administrative stuff about the way that they did their membership process and the way that like small groups were set up. I was like, there's a lot happening here that I'm not really into. And so he was like, you know, what do you want to come out of this conversation. And I said, honestly, I just don't know if leadership is really aware of like the fact that any of these things are happening at their church because it's a church of 600 people and there's like four of you who are pastors. So there's like a lot happening that you guys probably aren't seeing. Although at this point, I think there are probably closer to like 800 people who went there. I know that now it's like 900 to 1,000. But like at the time, I think it was about 800. And I was like, you know, I I just want you guys to know that this is happening. I just want you guys to just seriously think about a lot of the issues that I've brought to you um, and just like really consider if there are some things that you should be doing differently. And he was like, yeah, I, I can definitely do that. I will definitely talk to the elders about that. And then the very next Sunday... I sat in church and Pastor Jay came out and he told the church that the day before he had accepted Pastor A's resignation. And what he said was, not many of you know this, but about a year ago, Pastor A's brother died and Pastor A and, and Pastor A's brother left behind a son um, that Pastor A has adopted. And just between the grief of his brother's death and the burden of having another child in his family, Pastor A can no longer bear the weight of being a pastor. And so he um, turned in his resignation yesterday and I accepted it. And I just, I just remember sitting at that church and just feeling like I had fallen through the floor. Like I felt like the foundation had just crumbled from underneath me. I, I like even up to this point, there were a lot of things I didn't like about the church. There was a lot of hurt that I was experiencing, but I still really loved going there. I mean, that was my home. Like those were my people. And I was still operating under this idea that like this is a really righteous church that that loves truth and cares about truth. And and there have been other it's also important to talk about the context which is that pastors had been removed from leadership before and they had and they had at least i think had been honest about why that happened like i remember my freshman year there was a man who actually i don't think he was a pastor at the time i think he was a deacon who had been 
on the path to eldership. Like, I think that they had announced his candidacy, but he had, quote, an emotional affair with another woman at the church. And so they told us they were like, but they said, you know, he um, is no longer considered a candidate for elder um, because he has had an emotionally inappropriate relationship with another woman, which obviously violates the standards of um, eldership that are laid out in scripture. And so he's not going to be a pastor anymore. I thought that this was a church that was willing to be honest about these things when they happened, that did not sweep things under the rug. And then I watched as right in front of me years of hurt and abuse and mistreatment were just swept under the rug all at once. I have a question for you. In that meeting with Pastor K, Mm -hmm. were you able to name like anything with Pastor A out so that you would be like, what are the things that you were like, I made them aware of this and they did not name it? I think that would be good for yeah. for the greater listenership to hear. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I told him all of the things that I've told all of you about the way that he would respond when I would talk about my depression and talk about how it was demonic. I talked about the way that he would respond when I would talk about, you know, um, my relationship with my family at the time, the struggles that I was having with the relationship that I had with my mom, and just the fact that he was always, quote unquote, like, speaking truth boldly speaking truth to it and that he would like make me cry and then tell me that I wasn't the one who made him cry so you had enough of a grasp on it to be like something is seriously wrong with the way that this man is pastoring people well no because even at the time like I would talk about what happened and then I would and then I would couch it with like which I mean I know that like sometimes pastors just like have to tell people the truth when it's uncomfortable like I was telling all of these stories not to make the case that he was treating me poorly. I was telling these stories to make the case that we used to be really close and now we are not. But when I told the stories of what our relationship looked like when we were really close, it it was the kinds of stories that I just told all of you. But in my head at the time, I once again just thought that that's what relationship with pastors looks like. Like that's what I was trying to say is like, we used to have this really close pastoral relationship where I would talk to him all the time and, and he would speak truth to me even when it was hard for me to hear. And all my friends would talk about how I used to cry all the time whenever I talked to him because of just like how firm he was with me, because of like the attention that he showed me. It was like harsh sometimes, but I needed to hear it. And I think that he was thinking to himself, I cannot believe that he said those things to you. But I was just saying, yeah, like he used to care for me really well as a pastor. Here are X, Y, Z things that he did to care for me. And X, Y, Z things that he did to care for me were pretty abusive. So my question to you in that moment when you're like, they're not telling the truth Mm -hmm. about why he's leaving. What in that moment, if you can go back to being in that room, what would it have even looked like to you without have processed through as much as you have now for them to have told the truth? You know, like, I'm curious what you would have, what in that moment you're like, oh, this is hiding. Because I, it almost feels like you had more of a grasp than you are giving yourself credit for. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that for years at this point, I had known women who had spoken out against Pastor A and who had talked to other members of the church about it and who had spoken to leadership about it. And early on in my relationship with Pastor A, whenever these women would try to talk to me about my relationship with Pastor A and say like, hey man, 
I don't think that he should be talking to you that way. You know, he talks to me that way. And I tell him that he shouldn't. And I would just always get really defensive. And I would say, no, you're just, you're not willing to hear the truth. And, and I'm tougher than you. And I'm, I'm willing to repent of my sin. And you're not. I knew that for a long time, like people had spoken out against him. And at this point, I definitely would not have been able to say that he had emotionally or spiritually abused me, but I definitely was beginning to realize that that he had really mistreated me. And particularly the redemption group thing. That that was the one thing that even at the time I really saw as like, no, that that should not have happened like that. And it was later that I sort of put the pieces together that actually that's how he had been from day one. And he had always mistreated me in that way. And he had always wielded scripture against me in that way. And he had always manipulated me and manipulated the Bible in that way. But that was the one incident at the time that I could really point to of like, that's not how that should have been handled. So he leaves. Yeah. And then your story, you know, you stay with the church. We we enter COVID. Mm -hmm. And then... You start listening to another podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars mm-hmm. Hill, and that starts to open your eyes to some things. Talk to us about that. Yeah. What was that like? Well, so even before I heard the Mars Hill podcast, I wish I could remember the timeline of this. I think that Pastor A left in either like late 2019 or early 2020, like but pre-COVID 2020. I was just really shocked that if nothing else, that they didn't even acknowledge that he had been hurting people and that they pretended that the whole thing was just because um, his brother had died. I remember that it was summer of 2020 that I I wish I could even tell you what it was that helped me put the pieces together. I think that I just started to hear other stories of abuse more generally um like not even spiritual abuse but i i just like started talking to more people about experience of abuse that they had experienced and starting for the first time to be honest with myself and admit that the way that they described their abusive relationships sounded a lot like what my relationship with pastor a looked like and i remember very clearly that it was No, it was summer 2021 that I started to realize this because it was right before I, it was right before I moved to DC. And I remember calling my best friend from high school and we were just talking on the phone and I finally just broke down and told her, I was like, I think I was abused by my old pastor. And I started to tell her like all of these stories and all of these things that happened. And she was just like, why have you never told me this before? And I just remember telling her, like, I didn't know. Like, I didn't know at the time that it was abusive. I didn't know at the time that it was wrong. But lately, I've just started to, like, think really really critically whenever I hear people talking about abusive relationships that they've experienced and realizing that that's exactly how it felt whenever I would talk to Pastor A. Like, these cycles of, like, mistreatment and shame, but then, like, coming back and, like, the honeymoon period and then the more mistreatment and the shame and and I was like I I just didn't realize it at the time because I just thought that that's what relationships with pastors looked like but I just started to put the pieces together when I had some space away from him and just realized that 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 was really bad I basically just didn't really do anything with that information except I talked to some people about it I mostly talked to other friends of mine who had also been mistreated by pastor a and who had left the church at that point and I started to reach out to them 
and just sort of say like, hey, I think I'm ready to talk to you about Pastor A now, because if you tell me again what your relationship with him was like, I think I'm ready to acknowledge that it was wrong. And I think I'm ready to acknowledge that he treated me the same way and that that was also wrong. And so that process was starting to happen, but I didn't talk to anybody at the church about it because at that time I knew that I was going to move to DC and I just sort of felt like, what's the point? They're not going to care about what I have to say and I'm leaving anyway. And I, I stopped going to the church on Sundays when COVID happened because they shut down when COVID first started. But then like everybody else in Texas decided that COVID was over in like June of 2020. And so they started hosting in-person services again, but they didn't require masks in summer of 2020. And so I was like, no, I'm not going to church. And I just at that point had just become very disillusioned with a lot of other things about the church that I realized I really didn't like, like just the general culture there. Um, that I think is just really toxic. So I was just like, you know, I don't even go there on Sundays anymore. I basically just go to small group and hang out with my friends and I'm moving soon anyway. So, so there's really no point. And then August of 2021, I moved to DC and that's when the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast starts publishing episodes. And that just like really opened my eyes to the magnitude of what I had experienced. And like listening to that podcast was such a bizarre experience because it was on the one hand so affirming, but it was also so much more painful. Like on the one hand, hearing other people describe their experiences that were almost word for word what my experiences with Pastor A had been like and and talking about their you know relationship with Mark Driscoll or other people at the church and then having that clearly labeled as abuse was very affirming to me that like, yes, that is what I experienced. Like that was really affirming. But at the same time, I was living in a city where I didn't know a single person. I don't have any Christian friends in the city because I haven't really found a church. And so I like kind of tried to talk to some of my friends about my experience listening to this podcast and they were really nice about it, but they didn't get it. You know what I mean? Like if you've never experienced church hurt and definitely if you've never even gone to church, it, you, you just can't even wrap your head around it. And so it was simultaneously really comforting and validating to have a total stranger label what I had experienced as abuse and be able to say, yes, that's what happened. I'm not a crazy person for thinking that I was abused. I'm not making things up. But at the same time, it was so isolating because I just like didn't really have anybody I could talk to about it. Like I just remember sitting on the subway to school and just like crying, listening to these episodes and just being like, uh, I don't have anybody to talk to about this. I go back and forth after having listened to the Mars Hill podcast about, I guess, just like who I sort of really blame for what happened. Because... Like I said, listening to the Mars Hill podcast and realizing that the church that I attended was basically a carbon copy of Mars Hill and that Pastor A, who is mentioned on the podcast, by the way, there's a clip of him talking in one of the episodes, um, which that was fun to just be like, on my way to school, listening to my silly little podcast and suddenly hear the voice of the man who abused me. I have a question about that really quick. Did they platform him as like, someone speaking about his own experience 
in like in a good way or was he mentioned as like someone that was also abusive no they mentioned him as a very neutral player um where he came up was in one of the last episodes where i don't know for sure that this is what he did at mars hill but i'm assuming so because it's what he did at our church he was over a lot of like the financial stuff and there's sort of this plot line in the mars hill episodes like towards the end where mark has been put under church discipline and they're trying to decide what the process is going to look like for them to restore him to eldership and it's difficult because they have like the board of elders which are over like the spiritual functions of the church and then they had the board of like overseers or something that were over the more like administrative financial parts of the church pastor a was basically just talking about the fact that they were bleeding money now that mark was no longer preaching on sundays and so he was kind of saying like Mark obviously has like a lot of like sin that he needs to repent of and he has a lot of growing that he needs to do. But if we don't get him back on stage in the next few months, like this church is shutting its doors. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about that that I feel like we don't have time. All about the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yuck. So you had names and words mm-hmm. for your experience now. Yes. You have validation. You can say... Hey, this wasn't just a one-off. This is happening wide scale. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that we've been talking about pretty much since the start, it's right? It's systemic. Is this isn't, it's systemic. It's not about Pastor A. Mm-hmm. It's not about, for us, Pastor H. Mm-hmm. It's not about Pastor T. It's not about mm-hmm. all these different pastors. It's systemic. Yes. And so what we're doing is piping out pastors that act like this and that are believe what they're doing is right and we're actually just feeding congregations to these really unhealthy men to feast on. Yes, yes. And letting people make excuses for it because when they started publishing episodes, I was like vocal on on social media and I was like, anybody else noticing a lot of parallels here? Like, what is happening? And Mm -hmm. I got so many DMs about that. I, one, got a bunch of DMs from women I had not spoken to in years saying, Yes, I cannot believe this podcast. Yes, this is exactly what I experienced with Pastor A as well. Yeah, just really validating that like they had experienced it too. But, you know, I also got a lot of DMs from people who are still at the church who were saying that I was, you know, being too... I was being too hard on them or whatever. There was one girl in particular who she, because I think I said something about like, I'm never going to attend an Acts 29 church ever again. And this one girl who Mm -hmm. like, I think at the time was still a deacon at the church. She responded to my Insta story and she was like, well, Mark Driscoll isn't head of Acts 29 anymore. Matt Chandler is, which LOL, like (laughs) uh, didn't take long for the truth to be revealed about Matt Chandler either. But I just responded to her and I was honest. And I was like, it doesn't matter what we experienced at our church was so similar to what to what happened at Mars Hill and and we just let it happen and then when people finally started speaking out about it Pastor A was allowed to resign people celebrated him on his way out I mean like in his last couple of weeks there everybody was just like oh Pastor A like we're so sorry that you've been dealing with this and you have like shepherded this church and all this stuff and nobody was allowed to say a word about the fact that is he pastoring again I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I know that at first he was not because he was just sort of like, I'm burnt out. I'm not going to work in ministry anymore. But then I think I heard from somebody recently that he might be pastoring again, but I don't know for sure. I have not looked him up on social media. And I think it's important to say that that is why 
it's important for churches to be honest yes. when they're letting go a pastor yes. that has disqualifying, problematic, abusive behavior. You have to be open and honest and direct publicly to protect the next congregation. Because that's what she said to me. She was like, there is so much that went on behind the scenes that you don't know about. And I said, it doesn't matter. Like, in fact, it's worse if things went on behind the scenes because that means that y'all knew. You knew that he was mistreating people and you were just trying to cover it up. And then it reached a point where you couldn't cover it up anymore. And so you said, okay, let's just get him out before things get any worse. And I was like, I'm sure that yep. I'm sure that parts of that are true. I'm sure that there is a lot more to the Pastor A story that I am not privy to, that I will never know. I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but it doesn't matter. He mistreated women and girls, especially in that church for years and was allowed to be celebrated and loved on his way out. And that's despicable. Oh, my gosh. So you wrote a letter to the church afterwards and then since then, I would like to hear where you're at as well. So what happened with that letter? And then where are you at today? So basically, Pastor Jay reaches out to me and he's basically like, hey, I heard you've been saying some stuff about the church on social media. Do you want to talk about it? And up until this point, I had started to think about writing a letter to him about my experience at the church, but I just didn't really feel like it was worth it. But then when he reached out to me, I was like, okay, well, if you're going to ask. And so I just sat down and I started writing and... Twelve and a half single spaced pages later, I had told him my entire story of what happened to me at that church. I sent it to him and he emailed me back and he basically said, you know, I'm really sorry that you experienced this. And he said some other stuff, just basically like platitudes. And then he said, you know, would you like to further this conversation with a phone call? And I was very hesitant to do that because I was never as close to Pastor J as I was to Pastor A, but I knew him well enough to know that he is very charming and he's very slick with his words and he can be very manipulative, honestly. And I was like, if I get on a phone call with him without knowing what he's going to say, he is so easily going to gaslight me into just like believing that nothing ever happened. And so I decided that if I was going to talk to him on the phone, I needed to be prepared for what he was going to say. And so I emailed him back and I said, you know, I'm willing to talk to you on the phone, but some of the things I mentioned in the letter I'm talk I'm willing to talk about and some of the things I'm not. So what do you want to talk about? Which really I was willing to talk about anything, but I just wanted to know what he wanted to talk about so that I could feel more prepared going into that conversation. And he said, oh, we can talk about whatever you want. This is just to serve you. And I was so angry because I was just like, if you genuinely wanted to serve me, then you would actually hear me out on every single thing that I said in this letter. And you would have said, we hear you. We are taking this seriously. Here are 10 things that we're going to start doing differently because of what you said. And you telling me that you just want to serve me like I like, sorry, but fuck you. Like, I don't want to feel served. I don't want to feel heard. I don't want you to just like talk to me so that I can get it off my chest and act like everything is better. I still have people who go to that church who are incredibly important people to me that I will love till the day I die. And I do not want those people to experience what I experienced. And so I want you to course correct so that this never happens again. I don't want you to serve me. And so I was really pissed off about that and I never responded. I don't ever intend on uh, talking to him. 
And has have you heard anything else since then? Yeah. So after the SPC report came out, I started posting again on social media about that church and about the fact that they're part of the SPC. Because when that report came out, Pastor Jay posted this whole thing on Instagram about like, this is despicable. Like SPC has a lot that they need to repent of. And if you read that Instagram post, you would have no idea that his church was part of SPC. And so I was like, this is bullshit. This isn't a you guys moment. This is a we moment. Yes. Yes. And so it's kind of a long story, but basically a few other people that I kind of knew reached out to me and they were like, hey, what's this about? I told them parts of my story. And there was this one girl in particular that, and I know that this is who it was. I was talking to her and I told her that I knew women at the church who were being abused by their husbands, who never told anybody on leadership that they were being abused because they did not think that leadership would care or do anything about it because they never did anything about Pastor A. I think that I either like misspoke or she just like, because I looked back at my text the other day and I was like, I could have phrased that better. But she basically misinterpreted what I said. And she thought that I was saying that I was accusing Pastor Jay of actively covering up physical abuse that happened at the church. And so that makes its way up to leadership. And so then I get an email from a pastor that I do not know and this other deacon who I like have maybe spoken to once, but she and I never had a relationship. Um, And he sends me this email and he just says, you know, we have heard that you have been talking to some past and current members of our church and saying that Pastor Jay has um, aided and abetted some abuse. Uh, Specifically, we hear that he has covered up some physical abuse. If that's true, we would like to talk about it. And I was so angry about this because First of all, you are now only caring about this because you think that physical abuse has happened and you clearly think that emotional and spiritual abuse are not concerns and that only physical abuse is is a concern. And you're only upset about this because I'm now talking to current members of your church, which means that your reputation is now at stake. And furthermore, when Pastor Jay emailed me back, he like CC'd a bunch of other pastors at the church on that email. And he was like, you know, I like, I just want to like loop them in on, on what's happening here. And so I'm like, you know everything that happened because you also have access to the letter that I wrote to him. So I'm not going to participate in your fake little investigation and just like re-traumatize myself by talking to two strangers about all of the abuse that I experienced when I do not trust that you're going to take me seriously or believe me or do anything about the information that I have provided to you. Um, And so if you want to know, you can read the letter that I wrote to Pastor Jim because you have access to it and I told my entire story there. And I emailed them back and I said as much. I said, I am very angry that you guys are only reaching out to me because you think that physical abuse occurred. I will clear the air and say that as far as I know, that didn't happen. Um, But it's ridiculous that you are only caring about this now because you think that physical abuse happened. And I do not trust that any of you will do anything about this if I tell you what happened because you let Pastor A resign with honor when I first spoke to the church about it. And then when I emailed Pastor Jay about all of this, you guys didn't do anything then either. So I have no confidence that you're going to do anything about it now. Please don't ever talk to me about this ever again. I'd love to hear your wisdom on, you know, specifically, what would you say to people that are maybe struggling with depression or anxiety and in similar situations that you were, because I feel like, you know, your lived experience while it was horrific 
has given you a lot of insight to, you know, how how in spiritual places those uh, struggles can be weaponized mm-hmm. um, and create more hurt. So, what's your wisdom there? And then what? And then what would you say to you know leaders and and how are you doing today spiritually as well? Yeah. So, first of all, if you are experiencing depression or anxiety or any kind of mental illness, you are sick and you should see a doctor because that's what you do when you're sick. If you had the flu, you would go to the doctor. If you had chronic pain, you would go to the doctor. You are experiencing chronic psychological pain and you should see a doctor about it. I unsurprisingly continued to really get worse for a long time because I had no spiritual guidance or guidance really at all about what I should be doing in order to care for myself and to care for my mental illness. Things really culminated in uh, December of 2020. I reached a really low point um, and I called the suicide hotline. And shortly after that, I finally decided to start taking antidepressants. And at the time, I was really disappointed in myself for doing that. I felt like I had given up that I was no longer willing to prioritize my relationship with God over my mental health. I had been told that I would be idolizing happiness if I did this. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I said, well, I just hope God forgives me for deciding to take antidepressants because I just can't live like this anymore. And to be honest... Which there's nothing wrong with taking antidepressants. I know you know that now. but Yes. yes. And that's the main thing that I want to say is that Pretty shortly after I started taking antidepressants, I became so angry at the church because I I honestly never thought that I could experience the freedom that I did when I started taking antidepressants. Like, I honest to God thought that I was just cursed to suffer every day for the rest of my life. And then I started taking antidepressants and one month went by without suicidal ideation. Two months went by without suicidal ideation. Three, four. I've now been anti been on antidepressants for almost two years, and I have not had one suicidal thought in that entire period. Praise Jesus, because he has given us good doctors who have done good research and have developed good medicines to help his church. And you know what? My relationship with Jesus is stronger than it's ever been because now I can see through the fog and I can actually have the mental capacity to pray to him and to read my Bible and to have a relationship with him because I'm not just living buried under the weight of all my depression, unable to see God or Jesus in any of it. And so that is the main thing that I want to tell people who are suffering from depression or anxiety or or OCD or, or anything, any kind of mental illness, is that you can experience freedom from this. And that's what Christ died for, is for our freedom. You do not have to suffer like this. And first of all, I think that God cares about our wholeness. I think that he wants us to be healthy. I think that the the reality of 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 sin is that we will not always experience physical or even mental health on this side of heaven. I'm definitely not trying to get into prosperity gospel stuff. You know, a lot of people will experience sickness in this life and that has nothing to do with how much God loves them or or how quote unquote good of a Christian they are or anything like that. But if you have depression, you have a treatable illness. And you should treat it because God wants you to take 
the gifts that he has given this world of good doctors and good medicine, and he wants you to be whole. And if what you need to motivate you to do that is the knowledge that you will be a better, I hate to use the expression better Christian, but like, like again, my relationship with God is the strongest that it's ever been now that I'm on antidepressants. And if that's the motivation that you need to do it, then then let that be your motivation. But I just want anybody to know that there is absolutely no shame in seeing a quote-unquote secular psychologist or a therapist. I'm still doing that. There is no shame in taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. You have an illness. You have the resources to treat it. You should treat it, and you should feel no shame for that. A freaking men (laughs) (laughs) yes but i just want to say like knowing you and talking to you like like you're just a wonderful spirit and you're a a wonderful and sweet and caring and compassionate person and i i mean just the interactions i've had just your love for people is so evident and i am just so sorry that that goodness was taken from you and tried to use against you I can see how God is redeeming that and recovering that and saying, hey, that was there all along. And those good things about you were always there. I just want to say, like, that's just such a beautiful thing. And I think this story is going to help so many people. I hope so. I bring you this cup, half empty and cracked. I hold it in my hands, uneasy with its qualities. I am waiting for others to come and fill it up. Coated with their opinions, I will drink it down, hoping it will cure my condition and bring others relief. My boundaries extended, you notice my cup. And hand me a list of names. I add each one, stirring them up. I ask for time, but my doubts just show you my sins, you say. I am exhausted by what was promised searching for any reason to believe in myself. In time, my cup overflows, splashing across your feet. You yank the cup from my hands and say, this cup was never meant to hold anything. True. You stand over me, cupping your hands, offering me another way, measuring out just enough to keep me here, afraid and paranoid of my soul. I tilt my head to drink only to see that same cup in the distance, empty and still cracked, calling my name. A name that I have known but denied. A name that tells me that this very cup, unique and half full, was not a mistake, but gives my hands strength, embodies my worth, radiates my beauty, and was made for me. I'm Jonna Harris, and this has been the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast.